Handelsbanken is a local relationship bank built on satisfied customers, financial strength and sustainable values. Find out more at handelsbanken.co.uk. Hello and welcome to Handelsbanken Insights. I'm Daniel Marnie. On this week's episode, we will review last week's Bank of England rate decision and what it might mean for the outlook for the UK economy. We will also look at measurement issues of various ONS datasets and conclude looking at the energy efficiency of UK housing stock. And as always, I'm delighted to be joined by James Sproul, Handelsbank and UK's Chief Economist. So James, obviously we had a split decision uh, with the Bank of England, but rates were held. But we also had the inflation report. So can you just outline what that rate decision means and also what the inflation report uh, was saying? So of course it was very unsurprising that the Bank of England held rates last week. We had had the, the European Central Bank the Bank of Canada holding rates the week before, and then the day before we'd had the Federal Open Market Committee in the U.S. holding rates. So uh, there's a, a general ex- expectation across all of the investment horizon uh, internationally that um, we are at the peak of rates and that we're now going to be looking for falls. It's not a debate which we can talk about um, both today, but also I'm sure we'll talk about in coming weeks and months as to when those rates start to fall away. And a lot of the, the sorts of things that people are talking about, and Hugh Pill, the, the Bank of England's chief economist, talks about Table Mountain, i.e. We've, ri- we've risen to a certain level, we're going to remain at this level for some time. Uh, and he then uses the metaphor a bit more to talk about how there's clouds on the top of Table Mountain, so it's at times difficult to discern what's going on, which I think is, is true, um, but it still doesn't alter the fact that you know that the rates are at their peak and they were, that the next move is going to be down, even though Andrew Bailey, in trying to reinforce his view as being an inflation fighter, in much the same way that Jay Powell did the day before, was was emphasizing the fact that you know inflation is still their number one tr- um, concern, and if they have to raise rates further in future, they will. So looking at the monetary policy or MPC report, now this doesn't come out with every Bank of England decision, but it did come out in the November decision, and we have a number of things that come out of, out, out of all of this. First of all, let's look at inflationary expectations. Now, we look at inflationary expectations from both the point of view of households, from firms, and from investors, and both short-term and longer-term expectations. And the short-term expectations, I mean, we have just been through a period of quite heightened inflation. And so it's unsurprising that um, a lot of the short-term expectations remain reasonably elevated, well above the Bank of England's target level. Uh, And in the longer term, all of those do seem to be coming back much more uh, close to the Bank of England's 2% target level. But it's interesting to note, really not at the target level. So people are looking over the next couple of years, yes, inflation will be falling. And we certainly think that it's going to be falling when we see those inflation numbers come out a week on Wednesday. I have to say it would be, uh, if it did come out and surprise us all with with a higher number than we're expecting, I think there would be quite a significant market reaction. But our expectation is that we will see that that number falling away. We look at the various components going into that um, inflationary figure. You've got, of course, energy prices, as I say, falling. Um, We've got Uh, food prices, again, not looking for anything particularly exciting to be happening on those. And the other thing that, of course, is big is is cost of services. Now, the cost of services is largely people, so salaries. And those those numbers are remaining above 2%. So that does tend to point to a bit stickier inflation going forward. So even if we saw um, those those, uh, energy numbers coming down and being negative, and, and therefore pulling the headline rate down, what we are looking at in the core inflationary element is a good degree of stickiness, and it's above its inflationary target. Now, looking at that number in terms of what's going on with with wage growth and and, and um, cost of people, the ONS data they face um, uh, some some bigger bigger challenges on all of this. One of them is that they feel like if wage rates are already looking at say three four percent, that's what people sort of try to, to base themselves on. It's going to take some time for 
individuals' own bids for their, their salary increases to fall in line with what's going to happen in inflation. So it's quite interesting. They think inflation is going to be, in, in headline terms, down to its 2% target. Um, there's a 45% chance of it being there by the first quarter of Q1, Q2 of 2025. That probably, in my view, doesn't square with the the difficulty we're going to have in squeezing out that last bit of that service sector inflation. So we're we're looking for a bit bit stickier there. They also have some measurement issues, which I think are really interesting. One of them is what's going on with the number of people who are employed or unemployed, and, and a lot of the labor labor force survey data. Now, it used to be that the Bank of England sent out or the, the ONS sent out a labor force survey to lots of people across the country, and they got a response rate that was well above 50%. Unfortunately, that is now down to around 15%. And 15% has a number of problems. It means that, for instance, um, you don't get as much granularity. So it, might be, it may be that you're trying to look at what's happening to the labor force in different regions of the country, but you don't get enough responses to be able to accurately say, this is how the Northwest is compared to the Northeast or the North, the, the, the Southeast as opposed to the Southwest or wherever you're trying to do those comparisons. So that's one of the problems. Uh, another problem comes in, in terms of industries. You know, Do you get enough information for particular industries to be able to gauge accurately what's going on in any of those areas? So they do have um, a problem there. And, and there's various reasons being attributed to why that's been a problem. There's Some people think there's a degree of survey fatigue. A lot of people are being asked to fill in many more surveys than ever before, and therefore they get tired of it, and then, or they don't fill it in as accurately, or they don't fill it in at all. Uh, there's also some uh, issue um, or some thoughts about, is this a demographic issue? Are younger people a bit less prone to filling in these sorts of surveys? I don't know, and I don't think the Bank of England or the ONS knows either, but they're certainly looking at it a lot. And what the Bank of England's had to fall back on is a wider range of surveys. And one of the ones that they've, they've done is um, their own agents. So the Bank of England has these um, people at agents. They're based around the country in various regional offices. And they go and talk to businesses all the time. And that because they're talking to them for, you know, face-to-face, they get a much more granular view on what's going on in terms of how are you hiring, what sorts of wage settlements are you coming to, how, how are you finding foreign orders, how are you doing investing, all sorts of questions, and therefore they can feed that back in. Mm-hmm. Now, because it's not just a survey, because it's actually face-to-face, you do get the data coming through, and I think you probably get a more honest impression of what's going on within the economy. So it may well be that the Bank of England depends more on their agent forecasts, which are showing a little bit less inflation coming through. So there's some, some hope coming through in all of that as well. But it may be those agent forecasts become just that much more important in future, given what the ONS is having difficulty with their normal surveys. Okay, we're just picking up on the point you were saying about the Bank of England's forecast for inflation. I think you said 45% chance of meeting target by Q1 or Q2 2025, but it could be higher further along the line, potentially. If we take the assumption that we are now at peak rates, given inflation is going to be quite sticky over the next 18 months or so, when do you think we might see some rate cuts? Well, our forecast right now is for rate cuts from towards the end of Q2 of next year. So that's when we look at the first one. Now, some interesting things happening there. If we look at both the, the European Central Bank and the U.S., they're expecting rate cuts to come through a little bit faster because they've got a little bit better outlook for their inflationary forecast, which I think is probably an accurate reflection of what's going on. Um, but we'll have, to, we'll have to really watch this quite a lot. As I say, we, we do have a, a forecast for when we think it's going to happen, but that forecast could easily change if we see the data coming through um, you know, and inflation falling away a little bit more quickly than we might be expecting, and in which case... I think the Bank of England would clearly respond to that. One of the things that's really key in all of this is nobody is expecting the the UK economy to be doing anything exciting over the next 
couple of years. You know, if you look at the Bank of England's forecast, if you look at our own forecast, you look at the consensus forecast of other forecasters, uh, other economists, uh, everybody's looking for really the trend rate of growth is near enough zero. And of course, that's one of the reasons the recession gets talked about a lot. Because if our forecast was, for instance, 2% and we were raising it or lowering it by 0.2, nobody would really, oh, well, that's all within the margin of error. Right now, because the forecast is so close to zero, you know, a 0.2% adjustment moves it from being positive to being negative, and therefore people start to talk about recession a lot. But really, it's just that is a function of the, the lower trend rate of growth rather than um, you know, this relatively minor movements that we might have in what happens in any quarterly GDP figure. Okay, and you were also talking about the measurement issues of various data sets. That seems to be showing up quite prominently in the labour market figures. Ostensibly, at least, they seem to be loosening in terms of the labour market. But if they are wrong, could you see a situation where the Bank of England starts revising its thinking about what it needs to do on interest rates? Absolutely. I think that the you know, those labour market for- forecast figures, the Bank of England will clearly respond to what it thinks is happening. And this is one of the key inputs, is what's happening in the labour market. But I don't think we're going to get... Um, the sort of degree of assurance on what's happening on labor market figures quickly enough for the Bank of England to use that as, as the primary source. I think they'll have to look at a wide range of indicators in all of this. And of course, if you're looking at inflation figures, it doesn't necessarily need to be surveys so much as people going out and looking at prices in shops. So that's a much easier thing to gauge than talking to businesses to please fill in this form about how many people have you hired? What sort of wage increases are you giving to your, your staff, et cetera? So that's that's a, a more difficult survey to fill in than, than just assigning ONS staff to go out and say, you know, go to your local supermarket and please tell me how much a box of Corflex costs. I think it's going to take the ONS a little time to, to rectify that and before we're going to see um, some more accurate data there. James, let's conclude on a very different topic, energy efficiency of housing stock. It's obviously something that we're very interested in as a bank. Uh, I know you've been looking into this. Can you just outline what you found? Absolutely. So the the, uh, Office for National Statistics did uh, an energy efficiency report, um, which they they put out last week, which I thought quite interesting. Now, if we look at what is the most aspirational type of house that we find in the UK, uh, invariably, people like uh, older houses, and we are blessed in this country with lots of very, very pretty older houses, say, say pre-1930. Uh, they like detached houses, and they like houses in the country. And if we look at what is the least energy efficient, it's that. Your aspirational one is is exactly that. It is, it is an older country house, um, probably, in many cases, Georgian or Victorian. Um, and I would say that in you know, looking at this, it, the, the differences are not vast. It, it's Yes, it is clearly uh, many of these houses are C rather than B. And we look, there's a bit more, um, I, I think, um, energy efficiency often found in the social housing stock. I think it's because councils have perhaps moved a bit quicker than people who have to pay for it out of their own pocket. But uh, I think what's also interesting here is that, of course, it is entirely possible to uh, upgrade um, your country house sitting on, in the middle of, of the field. It's a whole lot easier to put in double glazing than it is to change people's aspirations, cultural aspirations, into what they want in the longer term. So uh, I think that there's just work to be done in this one, but it's quite clear that in many cases what people want and what people have wanted for, for many, many years is going to be costing them a little bit more in terms of bringing this house up to standard. So, so is the solution to this broadly that we want to try and get rid of some of these energy inefficient homes and replace them with new homes? No, I don't think that's the case. I mean, clearly there is a need for um, some house building across the country as a whole. And when you are building new houses, clearly you want that to be as energy efficient as possible. But one of the things is also uh, about some of these older homes, which may be a bit less energy efficient on an ongoing basis, is, of course, they've got a lot of embedded carbon. 
And, you know, if you've got a house that was built 150 years ago, you know, the firing of the bricks that built that house, well, that's long expired. But if you're building a new house, you've got to have the bricks right now. And so the, the embedded carbon issue is not one which is included in the ongoing sort of day-to-day -day cost of the CO2 emissions. But, you know, if we're looking holistically at, at the housing market, one should include both the ongoing costs, but then the embedded costs as well. And that's where older houses uh, do particularly well. Very interesting point. James, thank you very much uh, for those insights as always. And if you like what you've heard, don't forget to rate us on the app where you're listening because it helps other people find us. And you may also want to share this episode on social media. We'll see you next time.